Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Listeners, I have a question for you. And before I give you my question, Julie Harris, welcome to today's yes. podcast. Thank you. So I have a question for all of you guys. And this, and this question is designed to cut through as much emotional bullshit about money as humanly possible. Um, this is a topic that we've never talked about with you guys today on this podcast, but it's something that Julie and I have been working on for our next book. Um, and here's the topic, and I'm going to read it to you guys, and I want you to think about it. And I went, Here's what's fascinating about when you start thinking about what we're going to present to you. It does cause an emotional reaction. You cannot talk about what we're about to talk with you about without feeling a certain way. I'm not trying to ev- uh, evoke an emotion, a bad, negative, nothing. I'm just wanting you to pay attention to how you feel when I read the topic of today's uh, show, and probably tomorrow's too. So here it is. Do you have a moral obligation, moral obligation, listeners, to be rich. A moral obligation. Julie, can you do me a favor and do a, a hit, hit up the Google machine and basically drop in the definition of moral obligation and choose sure. the sh- shortest, most concise one you can find? A moral obligation. And by moral obligation, I'll just frame it out in uh, simple Timese, okay? So that would be, for example, if you were walking along the street and, you know, downtown Manhattan, and you saw Upper East Side, and you saw somebody that wasn't necessarily paying attention as most people, you know, when Julie and I go to New York, we're walking around, and, you know, here we are, wide-eyed Midwesterners at heart. We're from Ohio, you know, and we're always like, oh, my the God, how can you not be looking? Look at the building. I mean, that's how Julie, but everyone else on their phones. So you're walking along the street. Pick your street in Upper East Side, whatever, in Manhattan, and you see somebody who's not paying attention, who basically is about to fall in front of the cab. They're right in front of you. They're within grabbing distance. You could just reach for it and grab them and pull them out of harm's way. I have a question for you, listeners, and I know what all of you are saying. Of course you would. But do you have a moral obligation to? The answer is obviously yes, right? I mean, you have a moral obligation, not an ethical obligation. Ethics are different. Moral obligation means as a human, right, as a living, sentient being, you have a moral obligation to preserve life, in that case, a human. Do we all pretty much agree what a definition of moral obligation is? And I'm sure Julie's found a more academic definition, sure. have you not? Go ahead. I have. It is an obligation arising out of considerations of right and wrong. It is an obligation arising from ethical motives or mere conscientious duty unconnected with any legal obligation, perfect or imperfect, or with any benefit of the promiser, uh, there's no benefit on the, there's no obvious built-in benefit. So it's basically your conscientious duty. Yes. Okay. I like that one. Good job. So moral obligation to be rich. Do you listeners literally have as much obligation to make yourself personally rich as you did to save that person from the looming cab or bus or whatnot that would have ended their life. Julie and I think, after having thought about this for a long time, knowing that this is certainly not in the current zeitgeist, 
you know, knowing how some of you will react, oh my gosh, how can not possibly, how can being rich, I was, maybe I believe at some level, you know, that being rich is amoral, okay? What's the definition of amoral, Joey? Uh, basically the opposite of moral. Exactly. Some of you believe that uh, being rich is the exact opposite of being moral. You think being rich is immoral or amoral, which is sometimes uh, the, you know, the correlation would be uh, evil. Okay. Some of you actually believe that, but you don't realize you believe that. You believe that on a subconscious level, or you believe that because – and, and here, here's what's interesting – um, Julie and I grew up in the Midwest. We grew up in you know, Worthington, Ohio. We met in high school. We've been married for 28 years as of last month. You know, we have, um, and we grew up in a very conservative Ronald Reagan era, the whole thing. But there was always an undercurrent of more, I guess nowadays people would call it liberal, socialistic beliefs, as there are mostly in, in, in most communities in, in, the, uh, in, uh, in the United States. And, you know, it just, it's, it's part of it, right? It takes a mix of people and their belief structures. But it's fascinating that a lot of the people, and I don't, Julie will not uh, overtly agree with me, but this is still true. A lot of the people that we associate with, the teachers and whatnot, they did not think in terms of getting of, of accumulating money and being rich as anything other than like that's something that they do the other people do their life and their structure was based around you know getting education getting jobs you know taking the summers off not having to work they were living and those were our strongest influencers when we were at our you know most impressionable years in high school and whatnot and that's true with you that was true with you that's true with your kids and so, again, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying when you're asking yourself maybe where do your sort of beliefs about money come from, they come from the people that were the most influential on you at the most influential time when your software was still loading into your brain and your belief structure was still formulating. And then, you know, we can talk forever and ever about essentially how different religions, you know, think about rich and all that stuff. But let's not, okay, because then we get too much into the weeds, and then we really start to pick some scabs, and people really start to get angry, and then I re we really get some nasty iTunes reviews, okay? So I don't want to do that, but what I want to do is impress upon you that you have a moral obligation to be rich for not the reason that you think. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to walk you through this thought process, and I want you guys to think about it. And if you don't agree, it's okay. You don't have to agree, but please allow us to expose, your, expose you to this, this concept. And I'm going to give you the overall concept, and then I'm going to tell you why you have the moral obligation to be rich. When you are rich, you are free. Okay, and I, again, I'm just giving you the overview now, and then Julie, broke, Julie and I broke this down into five, hopefully, very distinct points. When you're free, that means you have control over what you do with your time, but you also have the ability, when you're rich and you're free, to actually basically help other people on a higher level because you're not so busy you know, working and just trying to take care of your immediate needs and making your mortgage payment. When you're rich and you're free, you can actually make an impact on other people in a very profound way. When you're rich and you're free, now notice I'm, I'm, I'm attaching those two words because that is the reason why you want to be rich, so that you can be free. The, word, the Latin word for freedom is libertas. The, the reason that you want to experience libertas is so that you have control of how you use your time and with whom you spend your time. And that's something that most people never achieve in their lives. Why? Because they were never told they could. 
going back to the education tie-in. There were never even that 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 thought was never even really implanted in their brains. They were they all of us guys, unless you come from money, frankly, or unless you uh, were exposed to somebody who basically broke you free of the confines of never being free, you know, you are going to be living these lives, and we certainly have, and we did until we figured this out, and we still are figuring it out, of always being beholden to somebody else. And that somebody else, guys, includes the government. That's a, if you're rich and you're free, like here's an interesting little epiphany Julie and I had a long time ago. Pretty much everything that you can get a tax deduction for, generally speaking, is not a great home run for the sake of you building wealth. You're incentivized financially to do things that are against your best interest as far as wealth accumulation. So here's what I want all of you guys to think about. If you were free, if you actually had no need to work to earn money, the money just came in passively, what would you do with your time? I bet, that's, this is, a, this is a, an issue I've had personally, because I don't have an answer, right? You know, I don't play golf. I mean, Julie, what would you do? I mean, what, what do you do? <laughs> you know? I, I mean, try to write more, you know, spend more time, obviously, with our kid, doing family stuff, have more adventures. I, you know, you and I, I want to get back to doing our French Bulldog Rescue and things that, yeah. you know, are uh, philanthropic and are helpful, but also make me feel good. I mean, I'll just, I can admit to that. I know that's like, oh no, we're not supposed to talk about stuff doing, you know, for yourself. But I think that you, when you are wealthy enough, you can make those decisions. I think if you're struggling and you don't know where your next paycheck's coming from, you really don't have a right to kind of like think about what you want to do with your life and sit around and ruminate. You have to get cracking. So, that's kind of a different tangent that we can go down if you like the people who well, no, would rather think about it than take action. But I, that's what I would do is I would do more uh, charity work, more um, writing and giving back. But, but here's the thing. Here's, here's, Julie is rich. Julie doesn't have to work. But the thing is, is that Julie enjoys the work she does. She has a handful of coaching clients, and she writes. So what, she's yeah. just, what she just described to you guys, minus the French Bulldog Rescue, is what her <laughs> life has become, as basically she and I have achieved more and more libertas ourselves. So here's the, here's the definition for you guys, and write this down. Rich, this is a simple definition of rich. This is, the word rich is what really screws people up, because certainly in politics right now, rich people yeah. are definitely being – you know, situate. Oh, they're evil. They're taking away. They're one percent. And do you know that the top one percent controls? Who gives a rat's ass? Okay. If Jeff Bezos is worth a hundred billion dollars, which is what he is, then it's because he has provided more than a hundred billion dollars worth of value to the rest of us. Trust me when I tell you. When we moved to Puerto Rico not so long ago, and I was, I found out that Amazon Prime works in um, Puerto Rico. Trust me when I tell you, I was thinking about getting a tattoo of Jeff Bezos on my butt. I mean, Our that was such alone. a revelation <laughs> that Amazon Prime in the Caribbean. That was wonderful. Okay, so, look, he is rich beyond measure because he has provided a service. He has provided something to millions and hundreds of millions of people that they put value on, and that's as a result, has created the pathway for him to become fabulously wealthy. You don't, and I don't, have any right determining how rich he can be. That is bullshit, because if he ultimately becomes the world's first trillionaire, which is possible, you're saying, oh, my gosh, one person should never have that much wealth. 
Well, I have news for you guys. One person really doesn't have that much wealth, or even $100 billion for that matter. What he owns is he basically owns assets that basically employ people, that take, you know, provide people jobs outside of Amazon, gives tons of money away. When you have that much money, the money itself becomes this thing that's like this living thing. I mean, Julie and I aren't near that level, but you guys conceptually can understand what I'm saying. But going back to the definition of rich, here it is. Ready? Rich is where your money works for you and you no longer have to work for your money. That's it. Now, some of you would feel rich and would be rich by that definition if you had five or $7,000 coming in per month. You would. If you had five or seven, maybe if you're in you know, a more expensive area, it might be like 20, you know, thousand a month, or some of you might be living in a lesser expensive area, so it might be three. Maybe you have a pension, and so, look, $3,000 a month is with your pension. You are rocking and rolling. You're good, right? So I want you to realize that rich doesn't have to be Jeff Bezos. Rich doesn't have to be even a million dollars. How about that? Rich certainly doesn't have to be 10 or 20 million. Rich is where you have enough money coming in every month passively so that basically you don't have to work for your money. Your money is working for you. That's, that's the definition. Just work with that because what that definition does is it removes the ego. Ego being, Julie and I are in front of a room. We ask agents essentially, what's your goal? What's your financial goal? It's interesting that the number that the people who care to answer the question, they always say the same thing, $10 million. That's what people say, $10 million. Like something That's part of the problem in their mind. They say that. Well, but they don't understand that they don't actually need to have $10 million to be financially free. Most of them would be financially free if they had between five and 10000 coming in per month. So then if you direct – so if you try to direct your mind – I'm not saying you guys can't accumulate assets in the millions, if not the tens of millions. I'm not even merely suggesting you don't pursue that goal if that's important to you. But what I'm saying is if you focused your energies on essentially being rich, where your money works for you, you no longer have to work for your money, and you define what that number is based on how much your personal monthly overhead is, you will accomplish that goal, some of you inside 12 months, some of you inside 24 months. And then you will be, by definition, rich. I want you to think about that. I want you to give yourself permission to have the thought and just maybe you decide to, to pursue that mission. That will give you a true North Star in your business and your personal life. Because if you say, you sit down, let's say you're married and you have kids and you add it all up, and use our real estate treasure map, guys, uh, to really drill down what your budget is. And the best way for you to get a copy of the real estate treasure map is just text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, to 31996. Text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, to 31996. And when you do, we're going to text you back a link where you can download. It's like six free books, but the one we absolutely want you to download the first is the real estate treasure map. Print it out. I don't, Julie, how many pages is it? It's a lot. The treasure map. I don't know. It's probably 120 or so. Wow, really? Holy tamale. Well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> print, but there, it's a fill in the blank business plan. What, yeah, what it does is it takes you through not just what's, it's not like filling out a tax form, guys. It's no, basically. It forces this them is, to goal set so that they know what the right. financial goal actually is. It, it is, does require introspection. You've been warned. You will have to know your actual financial picture. You will have to set actual goals that will motivate you, and you'll have to figure out what it's going to take. The good news about that, Tim, to your point, because they always say it's going to take $10 million or you know, four, four or five times what they're used to making. No, you, it's so interesting when we get the results of the Treasure Mac from these guys. It's almost always a huge aha moment. Oh, my God, I didn't realize that all it takes is to maybe do like – 
you know, have 12 listings at all times instead of seven. I can do that. It helps you define what it's going to take for you to get to that, that uh, better place of wealth. It's not $10 million unless you're, you know, have some other issues going on. <laughs> it better not be $10 million to get you there. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take you through, now that we're kind of working off the same set of beliefs, right? Moral yep. obligation, you know what that is. The goal of, uh, is to be rich where your money works for you. You no longer have to work for your money. Download the real estate treasure map. Text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, to 31996. It'll take you through the exercise of basically creating your business plan. We strongly suggest, uh, assuming you have a partner or a spouse, that you do it with your partner and your spouse. Um, that way you guys are all on the same page. Do not have your own set of goals away from your partner or spouse. That's a surefire recipe for having all kinds of problems. Remember, we told you that. All right, so look, we're going to go through these rule by rule, and I'm going to go right to rule number two, Julie. Are you ready? Yep. I really like this rule because it's so true. And, man, did we take, Julie and I, you know, we took a long-ass time to figure this one out. Ready? Here it is. Rule number two, nobody, not even your mama, wants you to be rich. Nobody wants you to be rich. I promise you guys, nobody wants you to be rich because once you're rich, there's all kinds of things that start happening. But the biggest one is that you are no longer dependent. Your, your society wants you to be dependent on government, schools, Social Security, a government job of some variety. The system can't exist if people stop believing. The, the, the system will simply stop breaking. It won't work. It's if everyone believes that they basically uh, they know they can be rich, and then they basically are working to achieve that financial freedom. True freedom only comes when you're rich. So let's say, for example, you're back at school. You're learning basically. They're sort of teaching you in an institutional format how to think like you're going to be working and living within an institutional format because that's really what organized education is. I don't really know how else it could be done, so I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's kind of what it has to be. It just seems like that's what it is across the globe. So you're, you're then working – let's say they all of a sudden introduce this new class that's called How to Be Rich, and they start learning in first grade. And then basically they teach what we just said. Your goal of your professional working life is to know what your you know, personal monthly overhead is and then to earn enough, or essentially create enough assets that the money comes in passively to cover your personal monthly overhead. That is your goal. That is the class that you will be taking. You have to take that class every year starting in, say, kindergarten, first grade. And that way when kids graduate from school, high school, they're then going to know my job is not just to basically go from degree to degree to degree and you know, learning all these things that don't necessarily make me money. My goal is to essentially create assets that produce income so that I no longer have to work for money so that I'm financially free. Wouldn't you have loved to have learned that, what I just told you when you were a kid? I sure as hell would have. <laughs> Julie, did you learn anything resembling that? Did anybody ever tell you anything like that when you were a kid? No, I don't recall any classes being offered, not even in college, that sounded remotely like that. Nope. Nope. Yep. Right not. Do your friends? Do, you, do your friends want you? Do your friends want you to be rich? No, your friends do not want you to be rich. Does your preacher, your Feel pastor, funny. your rabbi want you to be rich? No, unless you're giving them money, right? That's a joke, but it's still true. Do schools want you to be rich? No. Why? Schools are filled with people who work there because they wanted a sense of security. They personally often distrust people who are not also safety and security minded as their primary drivers. Remember, we told you that. Why don't your friends want you to be rich? Why doesn't your mama want you to be rich? Why? Because everybody says, 
why isn't and subconsciously or maybe even they'll actually say it why isn't this good enough why is uh, you know we are working and living in a similar environment as you you know tim and julie harris why is it that you're all of a sudden deciding that this isn't good enough for you that you're deciding now that you want to somehow be rich and somehow transcend or move past what we all have accepted as being okay for us you guys understand that people don't think that introspectively but when you decide you're going to essentially break free or you're going to move beyond your current reality you are in essence in the mind of your friends your family your loved ones your preacher your rabbi it does not matter what you are rejecting them that's how they're going to feel um <laughs> this is a true example too some of you have said damn it i'm going to lose my 30 pounds which is probably really 40 or whatever it is right and then you start telling your friends, and then you start wanting to do things to lose the weight. And then you start, you know, I'm joining a gym, and, and everyone originally initially starts out, yeah, go, you go, girl, you go and lose that weight. I, I might do it with you, but no, I never will. But good job, go for it. And then what happens is they just, you know, they will, you'll go to their, the football games, and you'll do the other things you've always done with them. And they're not reinforcing you losing the weight. They're not saying, hey, Bob, hey, Susie, let's back off the potatoes. You know, you guys, you're trying to lose weight. We as your friends want to help you. Hell no. They're having, helping you double down the potato chips, aren't they? It, because what happens is basically when you – it's the crabs in the bucket story, and that's kind of a crude way of thinking of it, but it is true. When you put a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one tries to escape, the other crabs pull that crab back into the bucket. Some of you have seen that before. Julie and I have seen that before. So, And this happens because everyone operates at some level as if they are existing within a tribe. Now, here's where the psychology affects you. If all of a sudden you decide you want to improve yourself financially, if all of a sudden you decide you want to improve yourself physically, what happens is they start to reject you in little subconscious ways. And it always happens, it happens the, and, and it's the most painful from the people that – are closest to you. It might even be your spouse. It might even be your kids that start to reject you. It's probably going to be your friends, probably the people you go to church with, probably the people in your community. When you start to try to break free and you try to start to transcend the, the tribe in which you found yourself within, they start to slowly, maybe a little, make little, you know, jokingly jabs and poke at you a little bit, try to cast dispersions on the fact that you're trying to break free of the tribe. And what you do, because you're not psychologically ready for that, because after all, these are people that know and love me, they should be supporting me, wanting to basically become a better version of myself. But I'm feeling the exact opposite when they realize that you're serious about accomplishing your goal. This is what will happen, I promise you. And then because you don't want to lose your sense of security of belonging to the tribe, of your community, of your family, of your fill-in-the-blank, then you back off and you basically go back to being like they are, so they'll stop rejecting you. So you'll stop getting those little you know, impolite, humorous, often quote-unquote humorous jabs about your transession or your, your, your attempt to improve yourself. Julie, you want to pile on anything on that one in particular? Because I know well, you've experienced that personally in differing degrees. Where? Yeah, and I've had coaching clients that have to deal with this. It's, I think you have to be very cautious about sharing some of uh, what you're working on and be, um, you know, I mean, I've, even, I've had coaching clients where their whole center of influence started to question what they're doing, and, and it's because they were, they were too almost in their face about it. It's like you have to really think about what your next move is on these things, uh, but what that doesn't mean that you about, do it. Yeah. What she's talking about is a psychological fact, and here's what's interesting. is what Julie's talking about. She's referring to something we wrote in our book, is that when you have a goal and you – 
aren't all of you being taught to believe that when you have a goal, your job is to share it with as many people as possible? Isn't that what you're, what you're told to do? But every single modern psychology, psychological study of that particular uh, behavior has shown that the more people you share your goals with, the less likely you are to accomplish your goals because of what we just shared with you guys in terms of how people actually react when you're trying to set goals that make them uncomfortable. That's what and with the exception so, of your your spouse or you know your your partner, because you need to be on the same page with your own family. But beyond that, by posting it everywhere and being kind of I don't know show offy about what these things are, not it's even almost show offy, like, Julie. Not even I mean to, not yourself, but perceived as that way by some people. It's it's like all right, I'm going to make everybody uncomfortable because they don't know how to digest it, and this wasn't really on their radar. It's better to you got what's the saying? Put your own oxygen mask on first. Take care of yourself, so you then can take care of others. That's the bottom line. So the moral of the story is don't share your goals when you're setting goals with other people outside of your spouse. Counterintuitive, uh, true. Right, counterintuitive but true. One of the little things that we suggest to those of you with kids is when you're trying to accomplish goals. Let's say, for example, you're trying to improve yourself financially. Um, uh, you guys remember the old Jerry Lewis telephone where there would be a big thermometer that would be on the wall, and then every time somebody donated money, there would be more money that would go uh, to basically coloring in the thermometer. Well, that's a concept that we like for the sake of basically telling you and your family, your kids in particular, that mommy or daddy are going to be spending more time at work. They're going to be you know, focusing on you know, getting to and maintaining 12 listings at all times, whatever your real estate treasure map calls for. Um, and so what's going to happen is after mommy or daddy sells their, you know, however many houses that the real estate treasure map calls for, we're going to go to fill-in-the-blank, Disney World. And then I promise you there will be nobody better to motivate you than a bunch of naggy kids. I know that for a fact. <laughs> okay? So there's a, there's a little hack for you that brings your family in. If you don't do it that way, to the point Julie was making, is they'll actually pull against you because you're not essentially you're not bringing your own familial tribe into the conversation. But I'm going to tell you guys a true story, um, and we're going to round the bend, and we're going to go to point number two tomorrow. So Julie and I are first year in real estate. I told the story before, and it's true. Uh, we sold over 100 houses, 104 or five with our pendings. Single-family houses, there was no home runs as far as builders who don't think we hacked it. We didn't. This is back when we were basically in our early mid-20s. We bought our first house when we were still in college. You guys can, you know, this is all true. So we did not know how many houses. We weren't trying to sell 100 houses our first year. We didn't know what a lot of houses was. We didn't. We had no indoctrination into the real estate world. This was pre-internet, if you can believe that. You know, the, the public internet still hadn't uh, gone live yet. So there was no big mass dissemination of all this egotistical bullshit that you guys have to wade through every day. We just put our heads down and we just got to work. At that particular time, we were working on paying off some student loans, but we were just having fun. Um, I have to say it's ironic, but the thing that motivated us to get our real estate licenses was when we bought our first house, the, uh, we, the agent double-ended it, and she did a terrible job. She did an absolutely horrible job, and I remember Julie and I had the little epiphany if, and when we saw the closing statement, realizing how much money she was making, that if that's all she had to do to make that amount of money, we're sure as hell going to do that. And that was so that bad experience we turned into our real estate career, which is kind of funny. I bet some of you have some more stories to tell. So we are in a situation where we are, you know, it was basically July or August, and we had, uh, we sat down on a curb outside a movie theater in Dublin, Ohio, and we added up how many houses the best we could, how many houses we'd sold. We remembered the people's names, and you kind of added it all up. We came up with 75, and we called our broker, 
Rory, and we said, Rory, how many houses does the average agent sell per year? And he didn't even, I mean, he, he, this is basically exactly how I call it. How many houses have you sold so far? And we said, we think we sold 75. And then he didn't say anything. He goes, call me back when you get to 100, click. That's what it was. Perfect broker. That's, you know. And so we did. And we got to 100, and then National Association of Realtors finds out, and we start to, you know, we wrote our first book, and all these types of things started to spin up from there. So we went out and uh, rewarded ourselves, and we bought a slightly used four-door BMW M3. This is back when they, these cars first came out. Uh, E34, for those of you who are uh, car nerds. Um, so was it E34? Yes. And so we went out and we bought this car. I remember it was Cosmo Gray. It had this uh, Amola beautiful color interior, and it was an absolute huge accomplishment for us to to have um, you know purchased this thing. Like I said, slightly new from the BMW owner himself. It had been a car he had ordered, the whole thing. So we took the car over to my parents' house, and I wanted to you know, show my dad. I wanted to show him you know, this is what we've done. My mom and dad, you know, they had a big backyard. They opened the front door. This is just a little you know, Cape Cod-type house. They opened the front door. My mom comes out on the porch, you know, being a very supportive mom. My dad comes to the door. He opens the door, sees what he knew to be a new BMW, Closes the door, slams it basically, and he I do not hear hide nor hair from him for almost an entire year. He did not say anything to me, talk to me on the phone, communicate with me in any way. And it wasn't until probably I was in my, you know, honestly, it was probably not until I was in my late 30s that I started to resolve why he acted that way. And I'm sharing some of what I had learned from that, you know, path trying to understand why he reacted that way with you guys on this series that Julie and I wrote that we're presenting to you today, tomorrow, and the following day. You guys understanding what we're getting here? So when we say people are going to reject you, when you start transcending your place that they see you in, when they see you as a particular puzzle piece in their particular puzzle, and you all of a sudden decide that you're going to do something different and be somebody better or different, maybe better is not a word you want to use, but better, okay? If you all of a sudden want to transcend the, the, the cast that you find yourself in for life, you're going to be rejected by the people that, that should love you and support you the most. That is how they are going to react 100%. And it will always be little subtle jabs at first because they don't want you to be rich. The government doesn't want you to be rich. You're, nobody wants you to be rich because as soon as you're rich, you're free. Here, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, but I'm going to leave this as an interesting thought. If you are rich – and you no longer could allow a politician to manipulate you out of fear of your not having money or your fear of any sort of financial insecurity. If all of a sudden you are wealthy enough, just 10000 5000 whatever your number is, that you did not have to give a rat's ass about whatever was going on in the economy or with interest rates or what this person said or what that tweet said or any of this other Mickey Mouse that people seem to be so obsessed with. If you were free from that, what, inf what influence and power would the government in general have over you? None. You would be free because they could not control you out of fear. This is a thought I want you guys to have because ultimately – what you don't realize, what we didn't realize until we you know, essentially stayed on this path for a long period of time, was how much we were being manipulated out of fear. Why do people go to work? Why are people encouraged to get into debt? Why are you know, all these things in place in our society? Ultimately, it's to keep everybody under control. This is just control mechanisms that have evolved over time. And if you want to find out what's on the other side of all that, and this is your homework assignment, 
Download the real estate treasure map, text the word Harris to 31996, and fill out the treasure map. And then I want you to start thinking about, once you do the math, and you know, 120 pages is a lot, so it might be this is a two- or three-day project. But figure out how much money you actually need per month. I, and Julie's point that she was making was it's always less than you think. 7500 bucks, 5000 bucks. How would you feel? This is your homework assignment to think about this and download the treasure map. How would you feel knowing for sure you had that amount of money coming in every single month no matter what? doesn't matter. You maybe didn't even work that month. Bleh, you spent the whole month at the beach. You, did, you slept in the whole freaking month. You decided to read the great books that you've been sitting on your bookshelf collecting dust for a whole month. You decided to actually, just, you know, you want to get in great shape, and you maybe decided to try to get yourself in good enough shape to run a, a half marathon or a full marathon for a whole month. How many of you could do that without painfully feeling the financial negative ramifications and not having generated income? Isn't that interesting? Why don't you think about what I'm saying and accept that as being your moral obligation? Because where we're going to be going with this topic is, is as you become rich, as you have freed yourself from the, the golden cage that we're all born into, it's a beautiful cage. It's made of gold, but it's still a cage. It still has its limitations. That's the society that we find ourselves in. It's not a bad place to be. Don't get me wrong. It's a hell of a lot better than it was, say, 100 or 200 years ago, but it's a cage nonetheless. And so if you were to start emotionally allowing yourself the, just the mental thought of what would it be like to be free of that because you've got this money coming in that you no longer have to worry about where your money's going to come from to provide for yourself and your family, what's interesting on the other side of that is that you really have no idea what you would do with your time. You know, that's the fun part because you realize then how much your whole life is geared towards being a part of this machine. And if all of a sudden you step outside of it, you don't have anything. There's no code in your intellectual software that tells you what you'd be doing with your time. You can throw spitballs at ideas, but there's no actual thing that's next. Isn't that fascinating? That tells you how ingrained being essentially dependent and never being rich has become it has become it's just common. That's how people think. I know these are concepts that are a little obtuse for some of you. I get it. It was for Julie and I as we worked through all this over the last 30 years and are obviously still talking about it because it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. So please consider the answer to that question. Start by downloading the real estate treasure map. Text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, uh, to 31996. In the meantime, guys, stay focused. We're going to pick up this topic tomorrow. Let me see. We have one, two, three, four, five more uh, uh, five more points. So we're going to talk about these over the next few days. Let me know what you guys think. Text me at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. Have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris.